Hi, my name is Vuken and I'm the host of the Change Podcast where we introduce you to people and ideas shaping MENA region. 2020 brought us something that nobody expected. I think everyone was super excited about the year and then slept. Yeah. Um, and I read this morning that around 900,000 people will lose their jobs in UAE only. Around 10% of population decrease. Losing the job. How the team books one? One person. That's a that's a big one, man. That's a big one. That's a very big one. So the thing is that we as humans we have a system in our brain that tracks our social status which runs on serotonin. Right? So when you lose a job, you lose your social status in a way, right? Because you are not where you had anticipated to be, to be within the structure of society. You suddenly lose the ground below your feet and you look down and it's empty, there's nothing there to hold you. So people who lose their jobs can, can definitely feel this, um, can have this feeling of being lower in society, of being lower to the expectations of society. And this is not something to take lightly because lower levels of serotonin means that you are more uh, prone to stress you are more prone to illness low levels of serotonin have been um, um, have been coupled with uh, cardiovascular disease diabetes and anxiety depression and so many other diseases right so losing a job and losing what is perceived as the social status is something unbelievably damaging and can be traumatic, right? So, what needs to, what we need to know around this domain, right, is that the single most effective thing that can hold us in situations like this is a strong social circle around us. What can we, um, what can we expect? in the coming years uh, when it comes to technology in UAE. You already said that we are pretty advanced, but people are not using that much. Um, and what are some expectations that we can have in the next three to five years in UAE? I believe the telemedicine as a whole is going to be changed. Mm -hmm. Keep in mind that we are still not utilizing the telemedicine as it is being utilized abroad in Europe and in the United States. We still have restriction to e-prescriptions uh, e that has to be done uh, from a physician who has licensed and based in the UAE. So we don't have that e-prescriptions from any, uh, any uh, consultation that done online internationally. So mm -hmm. I think the, uh, there will be a lot of maturities toward mm -hmm. the regulation of telemedicine in the coming a few years, mm -hmm. if not soon, within a few months. So, because I'm sure, I'm sure that the health authorities within the UAE are looking more into that perspectives. Mm -hmm. Because this is something that we have seen. Also keeping in mind that UAE has pursued the medical tourism. So there will be a lot of uh, international patients who are actually wanting to utilize 
a lot of these platforms internationally. So it's going to open a lot of areas, channels, and directions into that perspective, which is, hasn't been practiced before. Building a perfect if that there, there is such thing, customer experience is an art. And every business is different, every environment is different, especially when we're talking about huge corporate, which is a very complex system where you need to put all people to work together. Okay, you got it. Maybe I got it. I understand. But how to make the whole people, uh, whole team understand, whole company understands mm. it, and then execute it? I, I think that's one of your. I think that's a, one of your roles now, right? This is a, this is a huge <laughs> topic that you're touching because uh, um, um, that's one of the main difference between the, between the big organization and the small organization like fintechs, for example, mm. right? Um, we are collaborating a lot with uh, with the fintechs. I call it fintech teams because for what, me what, are, are startup teams. When you say fintech, what do you, what do you mean by fintech? Um, I mean teams, uh, small, uh, small startups, startups that are creating uh, financial products mm -hmm. in the space of the, the banking industry mm -hmm. and financial industry. Um, the main, in my experience, one of the main difference between the two uh, kind of organization. I mean, the, the, the classic, the traditional bank, the big bank, is a big organization. This is a small team, um, very small, very focused. The point is that is where are focus on? Because these guys, these guys, these small teams, they are creating quickly a products that fix a specific force or problem in the market. Niche. The way in which they are doing it is like a like a startup, they are uh, living on their products. They are extremely focused on the customer experience to delight the customer. How do you define innovation? Um, for me personally, it's about uh, taking something and elevating it and adding a little bit of a different flavor to it. Mm. Um, in, in an initial sense, it's not for me going out and um, coming up with something completely off the wall. Yeah. I don't think in a corporate sense, that level of pivoting, you know, if you're in a startup, you maybe. pivot and you can maybe pivot your, your, your fundamentals quite substantially. You can't do that in a corporate sense. Yeah. So for me, it's how do we take something and elevate it that is not, that wasn't there before, that wasn't thought about in that way. And that may be the, as something as simple as the process behind mm. it. That could be as something as simple as using design thinking. Mm -hmm in an organization that's been doing the same processes for the last 15 years. And mm. um, that to me is innovation or getting, getting the business to drive their own change initiative um, with some of the principles and the methodologies that, that, that we promote. That to me is innovation. Yeah. That is a different kind of innovation, I think, to, as I say, a startup yeah. proposition. What changed in the market in, in sense of demand for e-commerce? Yeah. So the first thing that changed, of course, is the is the demand. Mm -hmm. We were in lockdown. I think ninety five percent of the world was in uh -huh. lockdown. So at some point, there was a place in the world, probably the still place in the world, where the only way you can actually buy something is online. Mm -hmm. So the demand grew, and by the growth of the demand, I think uh, what happened is people who never bought online, consumers who never bought online, they were forced to, and that's why there was this spike. Because again, I'm not a, I'm not a number guys. Yep. 
But if you look, all the stats are telling us yes, there's been a growth in uh, in e-commerce. And one is that you know, and then you got all, all the numbers from like two hundred percent, two hundred percent. You know, mm -hmm. so depending on depending on who's running the research and what the end purpose of the research. But for sure, it grew. But if you look in depth, I think what is really important is you got the growth of certain categories that uh, were really small at the beginning. Really? The first one is grocery. Mm -hmm. If you look at this region, in this region, I think it grew, you know, time 4%. I don't know how much, but a lot. Uh, and if you look at what's happening, you know, even the bigger players like, you know, Carrefour uh -huh. and Lulu and all of them, they really saw this kind of spike. I uh -huh. mean, of course, then this, uh, Insta Shop and then the all, all the different grocery places. Mm -hmm. This is a shift in 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 um, consumer habit, which is probably going to stay. Mm -hmm. So I think that's that's where the difference comes because uh, lockdown was an emergency. Mm -hmm. So of course, lockdown was good for everyone doing e-commerce. And then again, uh, I probably need. To, to talk a bit more about that but let's assume that mm -hmm. because it was not mm -hmm. but let's assume it was good for a big majority of, of companies doing e-commerce uh, but again for some th the most important data for me is that most of these companies they actually acquired new clients mm -hmm. which they should and they will probably be able to actually maintain i was super amazed with the amount of technology that is behind the service that we are receiving that is not okay. visible to the patient. Usually, from the perspective of the patient, I come in, I get the treatment, usually interact with the doctor. They told me what's my di diagnosis, they give me the, 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 the treatment, I go to the pharmacy, I buy my medicines, and I go home. Hmm. While in the background, there is so many of the systems that are in place to supplement the decision-making the doctors are, are, are facing, right? That's true. What are, like... Uh, some of the backbone systems behind the one healthcare service provider that you would emphasize as the the key technology stacks be behind the service. If we are talking about talking about uh, the integration, the integration and integration, what does that mean? That we connected the components of technology all together. Mm -hmm. uh, so we, all of the pieces of technology to communicate between each yes. other and work seamlessly. Yes, yes. We have the algorithm, uh, how we can do this. We have the knowledge for, from the clinical where we connected. Uh, we have the technology and the technology resources. We connect all together uh, to make sure that the data flow is easy between all this component and come up with uh, ideas and uh, solutions to the healthcare provider. Many people also are using the big data and big data analysis mm -hmm. to identify, uh, for example, the risk factor uh, mm -hmm. for one of the admissions or the readmission uh, factor will be high, low, uh, how we can eliminate this uh, readmission if someone is about to discharge from the mm -hmm. uh, hospital or the facility and there is a high, uh, high risk factor that he is he's, he will be admitted again to the hospital uh, because there is a gap on the workflow mm -hmm. uh, there is a big data analysis done and prediction uh, uh, is done on the existing uh, data to identify this uh, ailment mm -hmm. there is also ai and uh, machine learning can you describe me what can we expect when it comes to real estate and what are some of the trends that we that we will see uh, going forward when it comes to you talked about residential and the commercial and, and how this whole game will change is it going to change mm -hmm. 
I think uh, it would not really change for residential, mm-hmm. for commercial, because the consumer behavior will change. So the businesses will have to change that. Mm-hmm. And when a business changes, commercial real estate automatically adapts to that. Mm-hmm. Now, what would that look like? Uh, it's uh, difficult to say. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe we would have different kinds of spaces. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe the office behavior will change. For instance, it's pra- uh, entirely possible that uh, two years from now, when you go to your office building, the lift opens and it takes you to the floor where you want to go mm-hmm. without any human interference. Mm-hmm. So the commercial real estate will have a new experience, mm-hmm. uh, but uh, overall it would exist. Mm-hmm. It doesn't die down. Yeah. Would you say that this kind of just accelerated the process of transformation that we were already on? Uh, so you know more about me on this topic, <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Um, you are currently holding a position of a data-driven culture lead. Yes. Um, for all of the humans out there, what is exactly a data culture, data-driven culture, first of all? Data-driven culture is making sure that no matter how much someone tells you, I have a hunch, mm-hmm. you ask them, but where's the data to support it? Mm-hmm. So data-driven culture is almost to say, in in fundamentally it's to say uh, what my business does and what business decisions get made mm-hmm. uh, made because there's data that supports that decision making mm-hmm. so it's almost to democratize data everybody that needs data has access to data and then makes decisions on the basis of that data mm-hmm. why, why does that, that matter well because um, you are in an increasingly competitive mm-hmm. space Customers want hyper personalization. Mm-hmm. You can't serve customers today on a hunch mm-hmm. because you might just get it terribly wrong. Mm-hmm. What kind of data are we talking about in in real estate? What kind of data are you are you collecting at all? What kind of data are you using? Okay, that's an interesting question. Huh. It's one we ask ourselves a lot as well. Huh. So, naturally, some industries lend themselves more easily to data collection. E-commerce, for instance. Mm-hmm. I have a customer. I know how much time that customer spends on a web page i know what kind of search words is that customer using i know what he or she has added to their cart mm-hmm. so their data points at every i mean you're generating very valuable data at every step and it almost always gets used in e-commerce mm-hmm. with real estate it's not as obvious one it's an infrequent industry it's heavy involvement and it's largely still a physical industry so um uh uh, I'm curious to know, so you, you are mentioning in your article that you wrote uh, wave surfers and disruptors, and mm. now we're talking about wave, wave, wave surfers. What made them ready for this mm. compared to the others? Mm. Well, actually, uh, in the article, I, I speak about two types of enterprises, which of emerging enterprises, mm-hmm. which will benefit hugely mm. from this uh, pandemic and from this wave of transformation and digital innovation uh, type a is these emerging companies which uh, already existed uh, mm-hmm. and were, were there uh, trying to do something uh, and already you know servicing mm-hmm. uh, you know the businesses uh, in the market uh, through uh, providing them with IT services for example mm-hmm. or helping them mm-hmm. with a digital transformation or selling you know digital services or products to them. So these enterprises are already in the field and they already have their networks and so on and their products. So this digital, this wave came in to impose a certain reality and Mm -hmm. to impose certain needs for digital transformation. 
So all they surfed and surfed, surfaced up as, as more relevant than ever. As more relevant than others. And uh, they, uh, you know, took advantage of the infrastructure they already had in place, mm -hmm. of the platform they already had in place, of the expertise they already had in place to bring out new products and new services and to service more and more, mm -hmm. you know, these businesses in need for, for uh, such uh, digital uh, innovative mm -hmm. services. Mm -hmm. So this is type A, and we've seen it you know, today in the article. We've, uh, I've wrote it in, in, in March, so it was uh, in the beginning of the pandemic, and it was kind of you know, uh, a prediction of how things can, can, move, can move on. And today, after a couple of months, we can see that uh, you know, these companies have really benefited. The whole idea about trading seems very exciting for a lot of people. And I think it's uh, based on my circle of, of friends uh, uh, as something where people feel very confident stepping in, but not a lot of people actually make a lot of success. And as you said, trading is more factual than, 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 than based on, based, more based on facts than on the assumptions, right? Yeah. Yeah, and it's it you can one can burn fingers if they try to to play it on the on the feeling, right? Exactly. I mean, a big mistake that a lot of people do, um, especially in the beginning, is going with the herd. Yes. And if you go with the herd, that's when you get um, um, kind of broken, right? Yeah, that's yeah, when you yeah. that's when you walk into a mess. Yeah. Because also Warren Buffett once said that. If you invest in something that's po that's popular, uh -huh. don't expect to do well. Yeah, and because during those times of markets becoming hype, mm. um, that's the time actually to get out of those markets, mm. right? Because at that time, um, it's just way too late. I mean, um, if you, for example, look at Bitcoin in the year of 2017, mm -hmm. 2018. Mm -hmm. Um, everybody was saying, well, let's buy Bitcoin at $20,000 because it's going to go up to $100,000. Mm. I mean, no, I mean, don't. <laughs> didn't that's a, yeah, it, it didn't happen. It may happen eventually. Yeah. You know, it may happen um, 10, 20 years from now. Yeah. But um, these kind of um, ex um, exaggerated market moves mm. are usually not sustainable. Mm. It's gravity. What comes up has to come down mm. eventually. Did you notice the, um, the growth in the number of established now companies or startups since the whole crisis started how does this they call affected? me on a daily basis yeah. so yeah no literally everyone is now uh -huh. becoming um becoming an entrepreneur we, we tell everyone they should do that though yeah um obviously putting your brand within yeah. amongst all the other brands yeah you're drawing kind of probably the credibility of your own product mm. um although you might get a number of sales you got to talk the longevity of like, do you get to own your customer? Is your customer then, are you going to have that relationship with them going yeah. forward? Um, and where do you see this in like five years, six or seven years? And yeah. probably now speak to me. I'm now looking at the long-term picture mm -hmm. of, of companies like this and how they can be established. Um, and it depends, right? So the type of the company, the size of the company, number of transactions, yeah, how strong your brand is. But then it's when you look at products that don't have a shelf life mm. or it's not in the life shelf life the company is based on so say a subscription based company yeah we love a subscription based company <laughs> they know exactly like if, if so subscription based company is the type of business where i subscribe to a certain product yeah. that is being delivered to me like once a month Every once month. a week or yeah and there's certain products that always like groceries will always have to be done like that uh -huh. um baby care will, like certain products and that will always have to be done every month yeah and same for even people grooming and things like that. that's the same yeah. thing and we have a few companies like that and 
they know exactly how much product to put in the warehouse at every, every given time, which reduces their storage yeah. costs. Yeah. And then after that, we know exactly how many orders are going out at that time. We might be left with like four or five extra pieces. Well, and they're just they're, there's they're so conscious maximum, of it. Yeah. Exactly. They're maximizing the profits from that. They're going to switch topic to workforce enablement. And you said that uh, it's a key pillar to digital transformation, or if we remove the word digital, just uh, transformation. Can you explain to our listeners uh, first of all, what is uh, workforce enablement? And then uh, second, uh, why is it important? Excellent. Now, you know, you are asking about one of the topics that I am really passionate about it. Okay, that's, uh, the, that's the goal. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. In, in fact, in the past uh, 18 years of my experience, I if there is one uh, conclusion I found is knowledge is the main driver of success mm -hmm. personal development is the main driver of success and by success i mean a sustainable success not an accidental success i understand meeting with a billionaire that will hand you two million will make you accidentally <laughs> successful but after a few years maybe that two million will not exist however if you build your knowledge progressively and sustainably in area that is required by the marketplace you will be sustainably successful and in fact there is a quote from uh, jim ron he was saying i found a direct correlation between my bank account and my personal development the more i develop myself the more my bank account grew. And it grows from a sustainable curve. Can you kind of uh, point out differences between, uh, you know, education 30, 40, 50 years ago and education today, uh, especially here in the region? Yeah. So I, <clears throat> so education has started uh, as a, uh, as a system to generate knowledge. Mm -hmm. If you think about uh, Cambridge, Oxford, mm -hmm. uh, uh, the Italian universities in, uh, in the 11th century. So the, the idea is to produce uh, scholars, uh, professors, uh, uh, to contribute to, uh, to knowledge, uh, to advance uh, knowledge, etc. Uh, maybe with, the, with capitalism, with the Industrial Revolution, we wanted to to have university uh, to produce uh, skills mm -hmm. useful for uh, for production, mm -hmm. useful for uh, to contribute to the economy. Um, so today, I think we are well beyond that. We want uh, higher education institutions to directly contribute to the economy. Mm -hmm. So creating skills is not uh, is not sufficient. Mm -hmm. it is, it's a big challenge. So I was in a uh, few months ago in a, in a conference in Belgium and. Uh, uh, there was the, the VP of HR of, um, of Airbus and he was saying that uh, in the next few months he needed like uh, 10,000, I can't remember the exact number, but like 10 or 20,000 uh, uh, new employees yeah. or new engineers with certain skills and didn't know where to recruit them mm -hmm. because universities were not producing them. Mm -hmm. So what they are doing, most of these big corporations, they are retraining, uh, are retraining people. Stuff. So I think uh, uh, producing uh, 
uh, graduates with the right set of skills is, uh, is a priority number one. Mm -hmm. But actually what is happening here in the UAE is something that is a bit beyond that. So we want uh, our education institutions to be a direct contribu contributor to the economy. Mm -hmm. So we want uh, our graduates uh, to become entrepreneurs. We want them to, uh, to create uh, uh, SMEs. We want them to, to have a real impact on, on the GDP of the country. So this is very new and is, uh, is something that is not I haven't seen it in, in other uh, places, uh, certainly not in the US or in Europe, in, a, in a such a uh, well-defined well way. It's, it's, quite, uh, it's quite unique. So I started innovation yeah. before Facebook <laughs> <laughs> exactly. and, and iPhone. <laughs> that's, a, that's a completely different era. Yes. What changed uh, when it comes to innovation from 2010s, something like that, yeah. when you were starting and, and today? It's very interesting because I think my mom and dad have a better idea of what, what I do now than they had before. Because when I started talking about innovation, um, companies were, and, and bear in mind, that's like more than 10 years ago and in Brazil. So the focus of companies was quality, process, project. So the, the hype of the moment was to be a PMI, to be a project management uh, manager certified, or to, to be uh, modeling processes or to be in a total quality uh, uh, department. So we had departments for those things. And those departments, they don't exist anymore because those things have been embedded in the way we do things. But for innovation, it was the, the pressure to innovate in the market was lower and slower. So you didn't have this notion that a company needed to reinvent itself every five years. How do you define innovation? What's innovation for you? Interesting question. <laughs> I'm, I'm very for, glad that I'm you looking actually... for an interesting <laughs> answer. <laughs> I'm very happy that you actually kick it off with uh -huh. that kind of question because uh, like you said, if you Google the word innovation definition, mm. right? So you will end up with hundreds, if not thousands of uh, different definitions. Mm. But having been in this uh, innovation field, I came into a conclusion and understanding that innovation is really a multidisciplinary process mm -hmm. to create something new in a new way in order to deliver new values mm -hmm. to the stakeholders. Mm -hmm. When you say multidisciplinary, what are you referring to? Yes, so I'm going to try to mm. dive into several uh -huh. keywords there. So uh -huh. multidisciplinary New uh, ways, yeah, right? yeah, yeah, new yeah, values. Yeah. Unpack stuff. this for us. Exactly. <laughs> I will unpack that for you. So first, multidisciplinary. Mm -hmm. What does that mean? Innovation management or innovation process is not a standalone. Mm -hmm. If you try to set up an innovation function in the organization, mm -hmm. don't think that it will actually run by itself. Mm -hmm. Because in order for you to be to be able to benefit from your innovation mm -hmm. function within organization, the Innovation function needs to collaborate and engage other functions within the organizations, namely finance department. They're the one who's going to be the, you know, give the, you a you go ahead or <laughs> yeah. reject your ideas, right? Yeah. With your uh, proposition. And then supply chain, for instance, right? Mm -hmm. Marketing, sales, those people were actually close to the customers mm -hmm. to get the insights from the customers. So it's really like a multidisciplinary mm -hmm. uh, engagement and process. Thank you so much. Great questions, great conversation.